Today's call to worship is found in Psalms 150. You can find it in your Pew Bibles in page 582. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the trumpet sound. Praise Him with the lute and the harp. Praise Him with the tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipes. Praise Him with the sounding cymbals. Praise Him with the loud clashing of cymbals. Let everything that has earth, that has breath, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Judges 6, 7. View Bible. 227. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus said the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of the bondage. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of who oppressed you and dropped, and dropped them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, you are God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. It feels, uh, um, I have to say, it, it feels comfortable being here, up, up here. Uh, we're a church family. And uh, since we became, began uh, attending and, and became members, we felt as, as being in family. And uh, we really uh, have received a blessing from you. And uh, we're happy to be moving on, but we're also sad in, in leaving this family. As, as uh, Jesus says, you, you will know that you are my dis disciples because of the love you have for each other. And we certainly have experienced that in this church. Amen. Amen. Ephesians 6, uh, verses 10 through 20. In your pure Bibles, it's found on page, pages 1082 and 1083. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, 
and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I'm going to do my honest part this morning uh, to neither confuse nor be confused as I pull together a couple of uh, elements that may not seem naturally related. First thing that I want to pick up on, as we've uh, uh, mentioned already today, is that it's Yom Kippur, a high holy day in the Jewish faith, and one with particular meaning, I think, uh, in all kinds of ways for Adventists, and I've talked about this before. Today is the Day of Atonement. Now, there's a build-up to this day, uh, fasting, soul-searching, so forth. There are things that are observed on this day, mostly abstinence-type things that might be associated uh, in, in some degree or another with even traditional Adventism and certainly Orthodox Judaism. Um, things like... Uh, Avoiding menial tasks, you know, you get a, you have a day of preparation. Friday would be the day of preparation, and you polish your shoes, and you pick up your dry cleaning, and you fill your car with gas, and you you bathe before sunset, and you cook your food before sunset, and you're ready for the Sabbath day, so that minimal, if any, effort is given to your physical comforts and processes uh, on Sabbath itself, and that's uh, customary for, I think conservative Jews and Adventists alike. But there's things beyond that. Abstinence from any kind of drink. Uh, there's fasting that accompanies us often. Uh, abstinence from sexual relations and other things that are not necessarily a usual feature of a Shabbat or a Sabbath keeping. So Yom Kippur is special in that there's an introspection that goes with this day. A recognition of one's shortcomings a recognition of one's true status before God. It's a moment of recognition of all of the ways in which one has been diverted, one has wandered. And it's a time for trying to make amends. Yeah, I think last time I talked about this, I mentioned it, and it's worth repeating because our church grows and shrinks in a natural sort of flow. Uh, some come and some go. But there's a vertical dimension, if you will, to our relationship with God in which we think of ourselves as sort of directly connected to Him. And there's a horizontal relationship in which we perceive our human relationships and connections to one another. In reality, they are connected because the Bible says, how can you love God whom you have not seen and hate your brother whom you have seen? If you... If you love 
one another, you demonstrate the love of God. And so this horizontal piece comes together in a vertical. And when we think about the Day of Atonement, when we think about making things right with God, the prerequisite, the very core of it is making peace with one another. Resolving those things that we have held against another, whether injury done to us or seeking forgiveness for injury we have done to another. There are special sacrifices that traditionally went with Yom Kippur. Sacrifices of two goats. One a burnt offering and one symbolic of the scapegoat that goes into the desert bearing the sins of the people and eventually falls off a cliff and dies. These are the historical and present pieces of this day of self-reflection and renewal. We're in a very rare time because Yom Kippur actually began at sunset last evening, corresponding exactly to Shabbat or Sabbath. And this evening, as darkness approaches, in temples everywhere, the shofar will blow. How many of you know what the shofar is? It is a ram's horn, often gilded or decorated, doesn't have to be, produces a very distinctive sound, and if you've uh, tried a number of shofars, as I have in gift shops in Israel, uh, you know that they don't all play as easily or sound the same. So some have apparently tremendous value because they produce a beautiful sound or are decorated in gold and silver, some not so beautiful. But certainly the best of the shofar would be brought out and the sound of the shofar would signal something very important. It would signal the blessing of God. The renewal of life in another year. The sacredness of atonement. That is to say, reconciliation. For us, we have been reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel that is clear to us. And the, the task that we have is finding ways to meaningfully share with the world the way in which we understand this reconciliation, that God reconciled the world to himself. Amen. And that all we need to do in practical terms is wake up realize this reconciliation, embrace and accept it. So that's one piece of the tie-in for today. So I hope so far no one's confused. The other piece that I want to bring into this is not necessarily a Yom Kippur piece. It's related to what I've been talking about for the bulk of summer and fall so far. I guess it's not technically fall yet. You get the idea. It feels a little like fall. I have been talking about the theme Bible 101, hoping that as we recount some of the basic stories of Scripture and throw in a few things that are not commonly known, that we'll be inspired to go back to these stories and learn them, to share them with our children and grandchildren. 
to become again familiar and more familiar with the scriptures and the stories and the word of God, that when we hear it, we recognize it. When we study it, we begin to connect its parts. When we look at it, we begin to see an arc, a theme that starts at one place and goes all the way through the entire scripture, drawing it into an idea in our minds. We've been talking about the period following the Exodus. I didn't spend a lot of time talking about some of the things given in the Exodus, and I will mention a few of those today, because as you see from the title, we're talking about codes, covenants, and customs. And I'm I'm happy to say it's not going to be as dry as that. We're not going to spend a ton of time delineating those things. I'm going to give you some references, and hopefully you'll have time to take a look at those things and begin to connect them in salvation's story as we look at the total picture. But post-Exodus now, we're talking about the conquering of Canaan, the conquering of what would be Israel. We're talking about the lands that had been promised to Abraham, (coughs) Isaac, and Jacob. We're talking about the division of land very specific in God's plan. And the implementation of that was not to be done by Moses, as you recall, who died east of the Jordan River. It was to be accomplished by Joshua and, to another extent, Caleb, the only two survivors of the Exodus who would lead Israel to the conquest of Canaan. And we've gone through the life of Joshua to his passing and have begun looking at the period that that, that continues to be the conquest because the conquest was never quite completed the way God intended. And we find ourselves in the period of Judges. Now, what I talked about last week brings up a couple of old themes. Last week I mentioned that the battle is always God's, the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. I talked about a couple of key figures early in Judges, Ehud and Deborah, and the battles that they fought and the ways in which they judged Israel and the way in which they saved Israel from its sin. You see, what happened in those cycles, and and happens all through the Old Testament, in a way all through the, the Christian church and up to the present day, is a cycle of sin and repentance. Can any of you relate to that? How I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but just think about how many times you've repented of sin in your life, only to go right back and find another way to sin. Or maybe you have a couple of habitual sins and you just find yourself right back in that well-grooved pathway in the brain going down the same path, doing the same thing. And let's not trivialize that. We're not talking about a chocolate habit here in which you like to have a cup of cocoa every day or something. We're talking about sin. We're talking about active rebellion against the God who loved us, who created us, who died for us and who makes atonement to this day for us. You see, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, is significant in that we hear atonement in Hebrews. This great high priest who not only advocates for us, 
but whose blood cleanses the sanctuary once for all. Coming back to our Old Testament theme, we find Israel in this cycle. God gives them a command, an order, a direction, helps them decide where they need to go, and they do it for a period of time and abandon it. They're very quick to turn to false gods. Now this, I'm going to just take a diversion for a minute on, this is a strange thing to us. It seems absurd, or it would to me, and I think it probably seems absurd to you, that having had a God who made appearances in the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, whose presence was the Shekinah glory on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies in the temple, radiating from that, uh, this God who uh, parted the Red Sea, who parted the Jordan River, this God who healed Israel and condemned Israel multiple times in their journey, that he should somehow be forgotten or mistaken for some kind of cheap imitation, some kind of poor idol made of wood and stone, some kind of ritual exalting fertility, sexuality. It just seems absurd that one thing would be traded for the other. Doesn't that seem absurd to you? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Until we find ourselves doing that every day. Right? Are we not worshippers of our own flesh? <clears throat> Do we not make graven images unto ourselves constantly? And I'm not talking about family photographs. I'm not talking about the creation of artistic renderings of things that have life form. I'm talking about ego. I'm talking about monuments we erect to ourselves. I'm sort of at the edge of a major midlife crisis myself. <laughs> My wife keeps telling me, honey, if it has to be a woman or a car, pick the car. <laughs> She's a very wise woman. And I'm looking. I don't know that I have any money. I don't know that I'm going to end up with anything, but I'm constantly looking. When it comes to cars, I'm as unfaithful as any man around. My Honda Accord doesn't keep my eye or my loyalty. I'm constantly looking at Maseratis. I'm constantly <laughs> looking at... Okay, man, you know what I'm talking about. Most of you aren't faithful either. Where cars are concerned. So... That little aside, we're, we're constantly creating gods for ourselves. We're constantly unfaithful. We're constantly choosing to honor ourselves rather than honor our God. And so the problem of Yom Kippur, well, it's not the problem of Yom Kippur, it's the problem of sin continues to find address in things like Yom Kippur. Because atonement continues. So if we can take just a few minutes and look at one of these Old Testament stories that we've been focused on, that we've been reading, that we've been learning from, let's turn to Judges chapter 6 and take a look at this story of Gideon briefly. Judges 
have my new TNIV and I think I need power glasses because it's smaller, I think, than my other one. I'll squint hard. Last week we picked up on this theme and it's present in Judges 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Sound familiar? They would conquer, they would do what God asked, they would repent, they would obey the Lord, God would move them forward in his promise, in his covenant with them. They would take a portion of the land and then they would grow lazy, insubordinate, unfocused, forgetful, all of the things that we are. And they would turn to the gods of the peoples that surrounded them. In some ways, they were less demanding and more appealing. Is that an awful thing to say? Okay, no judgment then. It's true in some ways. The other gods did not demand any less sacrifice than Jehovah did. But the cult of fertility was an interesting one. And there wasn't anything more demanded of that whole system of worship than of the worship of the true God. And in point of fact, you had an image. You had something tangible. So in the time of Gideon... The power of the Midianites was very, very oppressive. The Amalekites and the Midianites were constantly, the Amalekites were raiders, and they were constantly invading the territories held by Israel, robbing them of their crops, their fields, their herds, and impoverishing them terribly. They were doing everything they could just to survive. And so, verse 6, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. Isn't that the story? The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, where his son, I can't say that word, Abizrite, Abizrite, something, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat on a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, isn't that an interesting greeting? We find out as we read further that Gideon was from one of the least of the tribes of Israel. His clan or family was one of the smallest, and he was the least of his clan. Mighty warrior. You see, let's fast forward just a minute to Ephesians 6, because that's what's relevant to our experience. Most of us are not going to see the angel of the Lord in the remarkable way that we're going to read about Gideon seeing the angel of the Lord. Most of us are not going to be declared in that moment mighty warriors. Most of us are not going to be asked to free a people and judge them. 
but we are asked, all of us, in fact, are declared to be mighty warriors. Paul says it this way, put on the full armor of God, that when the devil comes, when, when you are tempted to be unfaithful to God, when you are tempted to go your own way, when you are tempted to make idols to yourself, when you are tempted to forget the way in which God has led you, when you are tempted with evil, true evil, the kind that degrades and destroys you, you will be able to extinguish all of the fiery darts of the evil one. And what that means is spears that have been launched mechanically and set afire. They're meant to penetrate things, meant to destroy, meant to inflict maximum damage. You won't just be able to stop something shot from a little child's bow. You'll be able to stop something powerful, something scary. And so we're commanded. Let me make sure I get my details correct. We are commanded to put the belt of truth around our waist, the breastplate of righteousness in its place, our feet fitted with readiness, that is to say that it comes from the gospel of peace. And you'll hear the theme of peace in Judges many times. Out of this warrior-like place comes this peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray. So we have this, this command. I could exegete this for you, and maybe I'll just do that very quickly. It's a sermon all of its own. But we start with, as the, as the King James says, I like to think of it as like kind of football gear, but basically uh, the belt of truth buckled around your waist. We, to put it uh, in, in simple terms, we all need something to hold our pants up. Right? And that's what that's about. Truth keeps us from being excessively vulnerable because it's strong. It is what it is. Have our feet ready with the gospel of peace. We aren't warriors to make things worse. We're warriors for the cause of God who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the God of peace, the one who has reconciled us to himself. We take up the shield of faith. That is our protection. Faith is the gift of God. And we take this helmet of salvation, this knowledge that we have been saved, that Yeshua, the Lord saves, is with us. We take the sword of the Holy Spirit, for He is, the Spirit is a mighty and sensitive weapon. And we pray on all occasions. So we find this angel appearing to the Lord, appearing to Gideon, excuse me, and saying, the Lord is with you. 
Gideon answers as much as uh, Moses does in a very humble way, explaining his true situation. And Gideon decides that it's time to show some hospitality. So he goes, and what offering does he get but a goat? And he prepares it with a little bread. Now, I don't know how long this took. Patient angel to stand there and wait. But he prepares this and brings it to this guest. And as he gives it to the guest, the guest tells him to please put it on the rock and pour broth over the meat and the bread. Which Gideon does. And the angel of the Lord takes his staff, his rod, and places it upon the meat. And fire comes from the rock and consumes the meal as an offering. And the angel vanishes to thin air. Gideon is terrified. For he has seen a human form. But now he realizes that he has seen the angel of the Lord. And he knows that no one can see the face of the Lord and live. God assures him, don't worry, you are not going to die. Well, the story goes on. He takes a second bull and offers it. And he does it in a bold move that speaks to Israel in ways that they still can't completely hear. He goes to the place of communal sacrifice. There is an altar to Baal and an ashtoreth pole there. He cuts down the pole wooden sort of phallic structure. Cut it up for firewood, tears down the altar, builds a proper altar to the Lord, and puts the wood of the asterisk pole on the offer on the on the stones there that he has stacked, and offers a bull in the name of the Lord burning the asterisk pole. When the villagers find out what has happened, they demand to know who has done it. When it comes to Gideon, they demand his death because he has desecrated and blasphemed the holy name of Baal. How quickly people forget. Joash, Gideon's father, is wise, and he says, does Baal need defending? Tell you what, I'll cut the head off of anybody who goes after Gideon. Let Baal deal with him. And so they started calling him Jarub Baal, which means let Baal deal with him. This is the man we'll let Baal deal with. Isn't that cool? Okay, you don't, you don't like it. Um, I think it's great. Here a man stands up to the symbol of everything wrong with this country. And people are incensed because he's violated something sacred. And yet that sacred thing has no power. It's false. It's wrong. And the God of Israel is with him. And they say, let the false God contend with the true one. And we know the outcome of that story, don't we? We hear it over and over and over and over again in Scripture. If you're not familiar with the stories of the Bible, guess what? God always wins. Whenever there's a direct contest, whenever there's anybody who's faithful, God wins. Doesn't mean there isn't collateral damage in some of these stories, but God wins. And he atones. Well, actually, the sacrifices are meant to be sacrifices of atonement. That is to say, to express penitence. To recognize that sin costs life. To recognize that there's an economic sacrifice that goes with 
recognizing the falseness of our gods and pretenses, that we don't own anything, that God is the author and finisher of it all, the owner of everything in heaven and earth, and the savior of our souls. So we get to this uh, uh, story, and I'm going to simplify it for you. Gideon goes after, he, he, he accepts God's call after putting out fleeces. I know people have done this literally. A little lamb's wool out on the threshing floor. The wool will be wet, and the ground will be dry. Okay, thank you, Lord. That's not quite enough information. Now we're going to let the ground be soaked and the wool be dry. Okay, very good. After all of this, you are with me. And on top of this, it's very interesting, uh, God makes a statement that he is with Israel, and you know what uh, Gideon's response is? Really? And why are we where we are? Why are things so bad economically? Why are we trampled by this people? Isn't that typical of our response? Lord says he's with us, and we say, well, really? What about the economy? Why am I losing my house or my car? Really? You're with us? Where are these demonstrations of your power? And Gideon has seen these signs and he's still speaking to the Lord this way. I love these stories in Scripture, not because they're irreverent, but because they teach us that all God needs is a teachable spirit and somebody willing to take a step out with him. Gideon wasn't a mighty warrior. God declared him a mighty warrior. You aren't mighty warriors, and I'm not either. God declares us mighty warriors, and he says, put on the whole armor of God that you might survive and that you might prevail, for the battle is the Lord's. So Gideon gathers the men of Israel, a couple of tribes, actually, those that had settled east of the Jordan, and in that territory, 32,000 of them. And God says, too many. So God instructs Gideon to tell them, anybody who just isn't excited about this, maybe you're a little afraid, maybe you've just had a baby, uh, maybe you want to get home, uh, maybe you're shaking in your boots, take a hike. 22,000 leave. Wouldn't that be a little disheartening? kind of how I felt when I walked into service this morning and there were 13 people in church. It's kind of like, okay, how are we going to win the city with this, Lord? Okay, whatever you say. 10,000 is still a good number. And God says, it's too many. I'll sort them for you. Take them to the river. And Gideon takes them to the river and there are two types of people. The people who drank water like this and the people who knelt down and stuck their faces in the water and drank it like dogs. When I'm backpacking, I tend to stick my face in the water. I don't know what kind of soldier you are. But all the people who stuck their face in the water were sent home. And that left 300. Because once again, the battle is the Lord's. Now, these 300 had swords, but they weren't their primary weapons. Guess what the primary weapon was? The trumpet. This motif goes all through holy days 
and it goes through all through the campaigns from Jericho onward. On the seventh day, after walking around Jericho seven times, the priest blew their what? Horns. Horns, their trumpets, their shofars. And the people yelled at the signal coming from Joshua, and the city fell. And this shows up again and again. When they get to the Jordan River to cross it, priests lead the way. Horns. You find this trumpet and shofar motif through much of Scripture. And when we see what it's all about, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And so they are given trumpets and they are given pots. Basically, they are to make a lot of noise, just like Jericho. And they circle the encampment at night and they are given a signal and they begin to blow their horns and throw their pots and make all kinds of noise. Midianites and Amalekites, they're terrified. They get up and start killing one another. And then they flee. And runners are sent to all of the territory to look out for these escaped soldiers and they are all hunted down and killed. God has delivered his people and there is peace for a period of time. There's an interesting passage pertaining to Gideon a couple chapters later. Let me see if I can find my note on that. It's Judges 8, 22-27. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. As it was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings, they answered, we'll gladly give them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah in his town. Very sad sentence that follows that. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. An ephod, something meant to honor the Lord, and it became not a symbol of what the Lord had accomplished, but it became itself a distraction. There are so many codes and covenants. I recommend you get a good study Bible. In my study Bible, there's a chart of Old Testament covenants on 20. On page 105, you can see some of the holy days on 155 and 180 there are more charts that explain in very clear detail the Jewish calendar and so forth a simple review of these things will help you understand what's evolving here as Israel becomes a nation as Israel takes her territory it will lead us up to the sacrifice of Christ which is the ultimate sacrifice once for all it will lead us to a conclusion 
that ends somewhere in a new Jerusalem. It'll help us understand the flow of all that's happening. We don't have time for it today. But suffice it to say that when the trumpet blows, amazing things happen. The Lord takes the battle and makes it his own. When the trumpet blows, we know that atonement has been made. When the trumpet blows, we know that judgment has drawn nigh. When the trumpet blows, we hear our call. And so today on this day of atonement, I pray that we will hear the trumpet blast, the shofar sing, and know that God has called. At this time, we will collect our offering and thank the Lord for what we have received. And so, Lord, may that rain begin now in our hearts and lives and be forevermore, especially to that day in which you come in glory. Amen. Amen.